on your radio and on your phone across Craven and Wharfdale. This is Drystone Radio. We certainly are. Very good evening to you. Welcome to uh, this edition of Men's Health. Um, and uh, in a slight twist, of course, uh, Sam uh, is our uh, subject this evening. And uh, what it's all about, basically, is a, a story of a jealous wife who tricks her husband into a blind date to see if he would play away. When he falls for it, she loses her temper with him. And at the end, you can hear the synthesizers create the sound of thrown plates. And uh, I'm going to couple that with a little bit of music, a couple of appropriate songs. Um, I'm going to end the uh, podcast with Kate Bush and Babushka. And I'm going to kick off the show uh, with this one from Chaz and Dave. Ain't no pleasing you. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. And don't forget, this show is repeated from 7 o'clock on Saturday so enjoy that, and I'll say hello and goodbye, and I'll meet you with the podcast.
Okay, welcome, Sam, to FTD Talk, and thanks for sharing your story today. I'd like to start by asking you how the relationship started. I was in a band at the time, a rock band, um, just going around the like, pubs and clubs of the Midlands and so on. And this girl was a bit of a, a band follower, made herself sort of known, tried to um, attract my interest. I mean, there's sort of thing that goes on all the time, and I've never really uh, taken any notice before. And this went on for a while, and then one particular gig, she'd had this complete makeover. I did not recognise her at all, and um, she actually looked, looked really, really good. And I, I, um, I was in, <laughs> in this difficult situation of um, having sort of totally blanked her previously, and. Anyway, she really went for it and carried on going for it for about, I don't know, six months or so. And in the end, I, I, I succumbed. What was it like with your partner before the abuse? We saw each other on and off for, well, the best part of four years, I suppose. At the beginning, I just thought that um, she wanted a notch on her bedpost, you know, and I thought that when, when I did succumb, <clears throat> I thought that would, that would be it, you know, I thought she'd be happy and that would be her, but she made it sort of clearer as time went on that, you know, she wanted that actual relationship and eventually we moved in together, but, but before we moved in together, she was occasionally a bit paranoid. There were a couple of occasions where, uh, well, she got, she got banned from one of the places that the band used to play at. Um, for being violent towards a barmaid who apparently was looking at me. I didn't know anything about this oh. until like two days later. And there were just a couple of little isolated incidents. Because we were only seeing each other maybe, you know, once or twice a week, if that, I didn't really think too much of it. Before we moved in together, I would have said it was relatively sort of normal and okay. Previous relationships... Yeah, they've been like normal relationships, you know. I've, I've never come across anybody like this before, so I probably wasn't quite prepared. After we started living together, which was what, you know, what she desperately wanted to do and so on, the first thing she started doing was self-harming. I could see that she'd done a bit of, you know, minor self-harming in the past. You could see it on her arms, but this wasn't minor. This was like I actually had to take her to A&E um, the first time she cut herself really deeply to i mean yeah. she staged it I, I i was out outside getting some wood for the, the log burner and i came back in and she placed a chair in the middle of the living room and she was sitting there with a knife and as i walked in she cut her arm so the wound opened like an orange i, I can still wow. remember the noise oh and i rushed her off to a and &E. I phoned her mum and dad they came down as well and um she couldn't explain it. I tried to get the doctors to sort of talk to her about it, and she just wasn't willing to address it at all. And in the sort of weeks afterwards, we had all these conversations, and it involved various things that allegedly happened to her in her past and so on. I, I'd sort of almost become her sort of counsellor at this point. And a few months after that, I was sitting in the living room. It was about half past five in the evening and I think the TV was on I was sitting there and she just came in from the next room punched me really hard on the nose so that I bled and ran off back 
uh, into the other room giggling. And I, I, I've still got this slow motion video thing in my head of that. But it took a while for me to sort of process what was. And I, I got up and I went into the kitchen and I said, what, what on earth was that about? And she just broke down into tears. Oh, I don't know what came over me. I'm really sorry. You know, I don't know. I'm so messed up, blah, blah, blah. And we had another long conversation about things and whatever. And she, oh, I'll never do it again. I'm really sorry. And blah. Mm-hmm. And from then on, this was oh, less than six months into living together, this was. Uh, it just went downhill. And the problem was that if we'd been like having an argument and she'd lost her temper and, and tried that, that sort of thing you can understand. You know, you can sort of see it coming. It's a lot more understandable. This was always just completely out of the blue. You know, as far as I was aware, everything was fine. And then all of a sudden she just start usually started with hitting sometimes she'd use an object sometimes she'd throw things uh she'd try and scratch me as well as punch me and i used to end up sorry would there be any argument before then would she lose the temper emotionally or would it just no i mean that's the point i I had no pre-warning at all and it was usually when maybe i had a cup of tea in one hand or something so i was not instantly able to put my hands up to defend myself or when I was asleep as well, I just used to curl up in a little ball, basically, and mostly on the ground, sometimes on the sofa, but mostly on the ground, and just let her burn herself out. And, well, maybe the first year or so, she would usually be all tearful and apologetic afterwards. And, and But then as time went on, that just got less and less, so that by the end of the six years that we lived together um it, it just you know she, she had basically stopped acknowledging it at all after after it happened and how um, did that make you feel i mean I, I i managed to get her to move out in the end although that took a, a bit of doing it was just after one act too many she, she was a little bit aware again of maybe that she needed some help and she moved out to a flat a few, few miles away, you know, like 10 minutes away. And we continued to have a relationship, um, but just not living together. You know? Did you did you ever talk to any friends or family about how she was behaving? <laughs> well, I, I had shared care of my two kids from my first marriage. And well, when I, when I started living with this girl, they were six and 15. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. My daughter, daughter would have been 12. Yeah, my daughter would have been 12. My little boy would have been six. So, yeah. And I had them half the week. And to begin with, that was fine. And, and they sort of, you know, embraced her. And she was quite keen to, you know, get, get on with them and so on. But as time went on, well, firstly... They could see that I had bruises and scratches, and I think they heard some of the things that went on. They didn't see it, but they heard it, and they saw the aftermath. And also, she started to be just to blow hot and cold with them, which is very confusing for a child. You know, if somebody's incredibly nice to you one day and then really just horrible to you the next day for no particular reason, I think it's, you know, yeah. it's very confusing. So they were quite glad when she moved out. I hadn't told anybody in that way in my head she she had some issue or other i was trying to help her with it i i tried to get her gp to help her with it and and he 
sent her off to see psychologists and things but she just never kept the appointments but the the classic time was we went for sunday lunch with her mum and dad and at the time i had quite an impressive black eye and her dad asked you know where did you get that and i just pointed at her and um her mum and dad just laughed they thought it was hilarious that, that's the difference between male and female victims if you'd have hit her then there would have been all hell to pay absolutely and did you never think of going to the police it didn't even occur to me it wasn't until after things got considerably worse and she actually got arrested that i processed it as actually being abuse because like so many other people it's nine years since she got arrested so the relationship was the six years before that so it's a while ago and even though i've got you know i've got an education and so on i just automatically in my head domestic abuse was what men did to women when they came back pissed from the pub you know that 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 was what it was in my head i didn't classify it in that way to me it was just somebody who had issues taking them out on me i didn't see it in that way you felt supportive of her you wanted you thought there's something wrong with her and you wanted to help with that yes and i i tried and i tried and i tried you know and I put up with all sorts. I jumped through all the little hoops she gave me. Like, if we move house, I'll be better. So we moved house. If we get married, I'll be better. It's only because I'm so insecure. Okay, so, so we got married. We had this bloody fairy tale wedding in a castle. Uh, and she punched me on our wedding day. She'd lost her phone. And she just got increasingly stressed about it throughout the day. And um, when I was taking her back to where we were going to be staying after the reception uh she just completely lost it and battered me in the car what happened after after she left did the physical abuse end there no the run-up to us separating the sort of two major things when we started living together and for the first sort of nearly three years of that she'd had quite a good job working in a secondary school as a pastoral head of house and She'd got suspended in uh, sort of late 2007, it was. And she told me that it was because she'd been using her work computer to send personal emails and bid on eBay and things like that. But she got sacked in the end for gross misconduct. And it wasn't until some years later that I found out that actually uh, she'd been accessing bondage porn sites and things off her school computer and she'd managed to get a virus into the school system which is how come it had been found out because they took all the laptops in to see where this virus had come from so she'd got sacked she got very depressed and funnily enough while she was depressed she wasn't anywhere near as violent but then uh, she managed to get a job teaching english at a prison teaching male lifers and this involved being locked in with up to 15 of these, well, she, the way she described them, they were mostly sort of massive and mostly black, locked in a room with them for three hours at a time with a panic button. So she used to come back from work absolutely stoked and demand rough instant sex. And one afternoon I, I was, um, well, I was asleep. I wasn't expecting her back for a while. And I woke up to find that she'd handcuffed my right arm to the metal bed frame with some prison-issue handcuffs that she'd stolen. And I sort of woke up, what's going on? 
and I, I sort of started to try and sit up. So she hit me round the head with a speaker from the little stereo system we had at the side of the bed and tied my other hand onto the, the bed with some twine and then tried to have sex with me. And I, I, I wasn't remotely uh, interested, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And yeah. That, made a very, that made her very, very cross. So, so she beat the shit out of me and basically left me tied up for 20 minutes, half an hour. And then came back and released me, and she wouldn't talk about it, just completely blanked it. That was 2009, and it didn't happen again for two years. And I, and I don't, you know, I haven't forgotten, but obviously I thought, okay, that was a one off, and I'd, I'd sort of put it away in my head. And then shortly before we separated, again, it was the same scenario. I'd wo- I woke up, she'd managed to do one arm, and then. She, she she had it really properly planned this time. She'd obviously been thinking about it because she had a whole load of stuff in her bedside drawer. So to begin with, she cut my T-shirt off with a craft knife, stabbed me all over with a craft knife, just, just enough to break the skin. I was itching for like days, weeks afterwards. She, she had candles and, and an oil burner and oil. So she poured candle wax on my chest and scraped it off with a craft knife, then poured some hot oil on, and then candle wax again and whatever, whatever. I've still got a scar on my chest from that. And the thing that made it worse was at the time we had, I don't know, I think she was about four months old at the time, a little one, our, our, our one and only child. Another hoop I'd had to jump through. You know, after after the if oh if I get married it'll be fine. It'll, if I have my own child it'll be fine. And to be fair to her, while she was pregnant, there wasn't any violence. Partly because she wasn't drinking, which I think always when she drank it made things worse. But anyway, after the craft knife stabbing and the beginnings of the candle wax and stuff, um, she shoved her fist into my mouth, and I it's one of the things I have flashbacks to now. Uh, the, having the fist shoved in my mouth. And I thought I was, I actually thought I was going to die because her fingers were scrabbling away at the back of my throat and I couldn't breathe. Oh. Uh, but then I realised that actually she was shoving something down my throat. And of course it was a Viagra tablet. I, you know, and I didn't realise that until obviously the effect kicked in. Uh, so having having done that, she shoved her pants in my mouth and then gaffer tape them gaffer tape my mouth so i was gagged you know first it was a pants right. in my mouth and then with the gaffer tape across it and carried on with the candle wax and whatever whatever until the viagra uh took effect and then she basically raped me oh she also i i i've got a horror of having anything ins- inserted up up my bum um when i had uh, i had to go and have a colonoscopy um previous to that and uh when when i'd had the rectal examination i pretty much screamed the hospital down you know yeah. um and she, and she knew that she knew what a horror i had of that so of course she used her vibrators on me anally um oh, and, and i was trying not to make lots of noise because the baby had woken up by this point in her moses basket at the side of the bed and she was watching i could see her watching what was going on god knows what she's hopefully she doesn't remember anything but um i was trying not to make a noise for her sake oh oh and of course part of the part of what she did 
um, involved squeezing my testicles very, very hard so that I couldn't come, made it absolutely impossible for that to happen. So when, when she'd finished with me, she sort of climbed off, picked up the Moses basket, sort of cooed to the baby, took it, took it off downstairs and just left me chained up, came back, I don't know, half an hour later or whatever, let me go. Um, and I went and sat in the shower for I don't know how long, quite a while. And then I dried myself off and got some clothes on. I went downstairs and she was sitting in the living room with the baby. And the first thing she said to me was, what's for dinner? Wow. So yeah. nothing. Nothing. At all. Not a thing. And I tried to talk to her about it. And after that incident, uh, I dismantled the top part of the bed so she couldn't do it again. She tried, but I'd you know made it so that I could get out, which got got me another beating. But that was actually better than <laughs> better than the other thing. A lot of people would say, "Why didn't you leave at that point? Why didn't you kick her out at that point? Why didn't you go to the police at that point?" Well, again, it didn't occur to me that it was a criminal thing. I was after that trying to get her to move out. I wasn't moving out because. I'd put my entire life savings into buying this house. She'd put yeah. nothing in at all. I'd been paying the mortgage. I had my two other kids whose home it was for half the week. I had this other child with her. And as far as I was concerned, it was my home and their home. And if anybody was going to leave, it was going to have to be her. Yeah, and that did eventually happen. We actually had a reasonable conversation, a rational conversation where she acknowledged that things were, you know, there was something not, not right and she needed to get some help. So when she moved out, this was going to be a six-month short let while she got some help. And then was a, you know, theoretically we were going to live together again, all being well. And we were still seeing each other. Every night that I didn't have my older kids, she demanded that I spent with her. And I did sort of say to her, well, you sure you mean every night? She was absolutely adamant about that because basically she still thought that if I had a night on my own, I'd, I'd be off shagging somebody because she'd always had this paranoia, even though she had absolutely nothing whatsoever to base it on. You know, she used to monitor my phone. If the older kid's mum ever called me, um, she had to be there. And if, if that ever happened when she wasn't there, that got me a beating, you know, because God knows what I was saying to her, blah, blah, blah. Oh, you just want to get back with her. And she, she'd remarried and had, had another child of her own, you know, my, my first wife. And we, we, we only ever communicated about the kids. We were very good with how we did our shared care thing with the kids, you know. We put the kids first, like you're supposed to, and, and that was fine, um, apart from when she got involved with it. So this sort of relationship from a distance carried on well it's it sort of vaguely worked for a while because the way her flat was designed if i sat in the right place i knew i could escape you know if i could see some signs of anything uh if, um if i thought anything was going to go and, and a couple of times i did that I, I i just escaped i could never do that in the house she'd always bar the door that there wasn't an escape a, fr a friend of mine was here yesterday who hadn't been to the house before and saw that there was broken floor tile in the kitchen and so, so oh, you know how did that happen and i said well that's one of the relics of uh, my violent ex and, and then i sort of realized that every single door has been bashed off its hinges by her at some point so all the hinges are a little bit you know dodgy they've been like the screws have been re you know refitted 
the door, if you see what I mean, but they're all a bit wobbly. Yeah. Um, there's two broken windows in the kitchen door, which has got like a glass bit. Because I live with it every day, I sort of, I don't see it, you know what I mean? But when somebody else, yeah. they, they, they were fairly sort of speechless about it. Anyway, after two months of this not quite long distance, two minutes down the road relationship, we'd had a nice day out with a little one, but then... Um, on the way back from we'd been to like there's this little petting farm place that we used to go to and uh, we back from there stopped at a pub and that was probably a bad move she had a pint um, I played with the little one on the play area in the, at the pub beer garden and we got we got back and she wanted to use the loo so she went in the house and in the meantime I was moving the car seat and then I'd, I'd done that, and she still hadn't come back out. So I went into the house holding little one on my hip, you know, the way you hold. She, she, she was 17 months old at this time. So I had her on my left hip and went in the house. And just as we were getting in, just reached the bottom of the stairs, I could hear all this shouting and screaming and banging from upstairs. And, and oh, and breaking glass. And then the next thing, she comes screaming down the stairs like a banshee and starts attacking me screaming incoherently i had no idea what was going on and because i was holding little one on my left hip i couldn't protect myself very well you know i couldn't curl up in a little ball i, I got some proper yeah. damage mostly down my right hand side and again i've still got scars from that and i can't remember exactly how it happened but she ended up out the front door and i locked the door and called the police. Uh, I didn't need to call the police because the neighbours had already called them and they were on their way. So the neighbours sat with her while the, until the police arrived and the police arrived and arrested her and then they came back and took photographs of what she'd done. This was about half past five in the afternoon that it happened. So the police were here bef before six and then they took her away. The, the neighbours sort of made sure I was okay, I was okay. And basically I gave little one her tea and bath and bed. Then the police rang me about, would have been about nine o'clock, I think, to say, did I want this dealt with under local resolution? And I said, I didn't know what that was, so they explained it to me. And I said, well, okay, as long as, she, you know, she agrees to get some help. So they said they'd get back to me, and then they got back to me about half an hour later to say, no, our, our inspector says it's too serious for local resolution. Do you want to press charges? So I thought about that for a bit, and then I thought, yes, okay, I, I do, because sometimes yeah. we, something, something's got to be done. So they said, okay, and I thought that was it. Um, but then they rang me back at about half past one to say that the CPS had said that they weren't going to charge her. And this is a direct quote. They said, because the jails were too full of looters and rioters. Oh, so they completely ignore the attack that you endured. Yes. Yeah, so I, I went to bed and then at half past four in the morning, well, 4.22 to be exact, bang, 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 bang on the door. I didn't, and I had a look and it was the police. So I went down and they brought her back to the house even though she wasn't living in the house, because she told them she was living here, and she told them 
that, that, that she had residence of our child, which again was a lie because we hadn't been near a court at that point. So I had like a 40 minute standoff with them, which is so ridiculously unbelievable. They were a different shift. So they didn't know what she'd been arrested for. All they knew was that uh, she was at the police station. She hadn't been charged with anything. And she told them she needed, she needed a lift home. And this was apparently her home when it wasn't. Throughout this whole thing, they were quite aggressive with me. And I would say, no, you know, she's not coming in. She's not taking the child. And I tried to explain what had happened and showed them, you know, because my arm was still bleeding. So eventually they went away not not before they'd had a look at the sleeping child to make sure the child was okay and not before they checked that i had nappies and food so yeah they went away and then the next day they came back again because she told them that i'd been making threats towards the child which again you know completely untrue i hadn't been in contact with her at all i think i already blocked her on my phone at that point so again, I went through this. They had to look at, see the child. They had to see that I had nappies and, uh, or I had the, the classic, can you cook? Ha! Yeah, right. This happened five times in the next six days. And eventually, uh, I said to the two police guys that were here, I said, you know, if you let me know what, what, you know, what time you're coming tomorrow, I'll put the kettle on. And they went, oh, has this, been ha- has this happened before? And I said, yes, you know, this is the, the fifth time in six days that you've been sent around here. And they went, oh, we didn't know. So they went away and, and you know, checked up what was been going on. They stopped coming after that. There's not much communication um, with the police then between themselves. Apparently not, no. <laughs> apparently not. So they stopped coming. Yeah. And at that point, I'd been doing lots of Googling. I'd got myself a solicitor who said they could get me legal aid or whatever and i made an application for a non-molestation order and uh residence order and prohibited steps you know all those things so that the child couldn't be taken away from me and we we went to court we got those and then two things happened firstly my legal aid got frozen and i didn't find this out for five months why but apparently my solicitor who was pretty much straight out of college, had made a mistake on my legal aid form and had put my childcare costs in my income box and vice versa. You'd think that the legal aid agency would see what a simple error that was. But no, it took five months of me having no legal help, no legal aid, nothing. And I couldn't get another solicitor because apparently I was still technically represented. So I had to try and deal with it all myself and it was impossible basically and during this time she started making ever increasingly serious false allegations she started off by saying i'd been violent to her then uh, she said that threatening to kill the child thing that 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 came up again then she accused me of sexually abusing my older kids so they were all of a sudden subject to a child protection investigation and i have to say their mum was brilliant through that um the kids were totally freaked out by it by having to answer these questions and so on 10 years later they, that's it's still quite a raw thing that that obviously found that there was nothing going on it was all fine so then she uh, accused me of having a relationship sorry an inappropriate relationship with some unspecified child at the school i was working at at the time i had a part-time job at a secondary school so of course uh, i got suspended 
neutral suspension for three months. I had to go through a full position of trust inquiry, recorded cautioned interviews with the police. And given that I only lived 500 yards from this school, I was terrified the whole time because, you know, if it gets out that somebody's been suspended, you know, you know, you know, when it's, I'm expecting bricks through the window. Eventually, that all came back. No case to answer. You know, nothing's gone on. I was allowed back to work. Uh, work, again, was very supportive and very good. Uh, they knew that there wasn't anything going on. But it was absolutely horrendous. And I was in a complete state at this time. And we ended up with a shared residence order. The assault was, was in the August and the shared residence order was in the February and they, they lifted the non-molestation order. During the time of the non-molestation order, she stalked me from up the road. I, I live like at the bottom of a hill. So she'd park as near to the top of the hill as she could to still be able to see the house. And, and that was more than the 500 metres away that the non-molestation order said she had to stay away. So the police weren't, you know, they, they said they couldn't do anything about it. So she'd be stalking me uh, from up there. But then after, after they lifted the non-molestation order, I just got bombarded with messages uh, demanding a key to the house, saying she was moving back in, saying she's going to be moving her stuff back in next week, blah, 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 the whole thing. Uh, and again, I was absolutely bloody terrified. I changed the locks and uh, spent as little time in the house as I possibly could because I was well, one of the things that she'd done in the November one morning, there was a knock on the door, and I went to answer it with with little one again, carrying little one, because I thought it was the postman. It was about the time the postman usually came, and if you know it was a parcel or something, I'd have to knock the door. And I opened the door, and there were these two big blokes there that I didn't know, and the, the conversation went something along the lines of, um, "You know, we we know your wife, and if you don't give her a baby back, we're going to be back." And then they sort of kicked the door and ran off. So I, I reported that to the police and they came out and took like descriptions and so on. And from the descriptions I gave, they were pretty sure that one of them was one of her ex-prisoners from the, where she, the prisons used to work at. And they tried to track him down. And I, from what I remember, he obviously had an alibi, you know, <laughs> of course he did. So I was expecting something like that to happen again. I was expecting her to send some more heavies round, you know. So I, I, I was just completely and utterly shot at the time. I couldn't sleep. I, I just didn't sleep at all. You know, the, like when you when you wake up, you have like five or ten seconds before you before the world hits you. You know, yeah. Before you remember where you are and what you do. And it was so awful being hit by remembering everything and oh that i i just my body then just refused to sleep <laughs> and i was like a, just a total mess were you seeing a doctor about it or um... no see one of the other things when i was in the relationship i'd previously previously been living you know before we moved in together i'd been living 40 miles from where we started living together and she wouldn't let me move my GP. She had a local GP, or she registered with a local GP. Uh, she wouldn't let me do that. And I, I wasn't particularly bothered because I, n I never went to the doctor anyway. Do you know what I mean? The, the two occasions, I think, when I did have to go to the doctor, she came with me, you know, the, the, the 40 miles there and back. Again, I didn't, I just didn't register it at the time. You know, this was part of the control and keeping an eye paranoia thing. 
But I'd registered with a GP by then, after we'd separa- separated. And I think I had a meltdown. I think I just had a... I, I can't remember what I'd gone to the surgery for, but I think I just had a complete meltdown, just completely and utterly howled uh, in front of this doctor that I hadn't met before, and they didn't know what was going on. And I explained, and he, he was actually... He, he was the senior partner. Um, I think he'd probably seen it all. He was very understanding and very, very helpful. Of course, they want you to start taking drugs, and I've always refused that. I'm not going to take antidepressants or whatever. I've seen what it does to too many other people. And, of course, there's an 18-month wait to see a psychologist. So I got myself some counselling. It's called the Rape and Sexual Violence Project in in Birmingham. Because by then, I'd started having proper flashbacks. I didn't know what they were. To begin with, they were like apparitions, the sort of thing that you get in a horror movie where something just suddenly appears. Yeah. You know, it's not real, but my God, does it look real. Yeah. The first time that happened, I was absolutely terrified. The next time I was sort of less terrified and I shouted at it and it disappeared. But then I had a physical one where I, I woke up and I couldn't move. I couldn't move my body. Any part, anything I could move was my eyes. And it was dark, and I couldn't see her, I couldn't smell her, I couldn't hear her, but I I knew she was there, and I could feel pressure on either side of my legs. I knew she was, like, kneeling astride me, that's what it felt like. And then my, my mouth was being just gradually forced open, and the fist went in, and again, I thought I was going to die. It was just a complete replay of that. And then, yeah. and then all of a sudden, it had gone, but I still couldn't move. And it took me, I don't know how long, 20 minutes, half, 25. I, I've got no idea how long it took before my legs started to unfreeze. I actually thought at that time that I was, that was it. I was going to be paralysed for life. That was it. And, well, I pretty much fell off the bed and went very slowly on my knees and sat in the shower until the rest of my body started working again and that was absolutely terrifying and at that point I knew (laughs) I knew that I needed some help uh so the guy at RSVP gave me some strategies to deal with it which were very effective after a while to begin with I was it made it you know I was having more because I was talking about it and it's the first time I'd ever told anybody all the details and he did warn me that, you know, it might might make things worse to begin with sort of thing. He also suggested eventually that maybe I might like to report this uh, with the help of a, an ISFA, as they call them, an independent sexual violence advisor, because what had been done to me was clearly a criminal offence. I still hadn't thought about it in that way. And and I thought about it and, and I was told, you know, you know, the chances of anything being done about it are actually very slim because they said only one in four of the cases that they take to the police end up going to the CPS and only one in four of those end up going to court. I, thought, I said, OK, okay, I just thought it might be therapeutic for me. They said they were, you know, they'd accompany me to the police station, whatever. Um, the day before I was due to go and see the police, um, the ISFA rang me up and said, look, they're really sorry, I can't make it tomorrow, but don't worry about it. You, know, you can go on your own. They're trained officers, I've spoken to them, everything will be fine. So I psyched myself up and I went along 
and I waited in their little waiting area for a bit. And then these two female officers appeared and took me into a back room. And the one that was obviously in charge had this big sheaf of papers that she shuffled. And then she took a sheet out and looked at it and looked at me and said, it says here she used to squeeze your testicles. Well, you must have enjoyed it or you would have reported it sooner. And at that point, I just couldn't say another word. So um, I went away and I made a complaint. And of course, they denied. <laughs> they denied saying anything. Of course they did. Yeah. And I, I talked to the ISFA about it. And I, I went and redid it with my ISFA um, female with another set of officers at a different police station this was a bit a bit more respectful but what they basically did and, and i've been told since that this isn't normal but i didn't know that at the time and, and all i had to compare it with is what happened the first time and it was better than that they they put me in a room on my own and there was a, a camera recording me obviously and, and a, a microphone recording me and they, they got me to sit in a chair and then barked questions at me uh, while they filmed me, you know, answering, I I'd been expecting it to be, you know, more face to face. No, it was uh, in this room being barked at. So I answered everything that they asked me. The, the, the questioning got quite aggressive towards the end, and quite quick fire. And I found myself just sliding lower and lower down the chair, so I was almost horizontal. And then afterwards, um, they said that they would go and interview her, um, which I think they did. But of course she's going to say, oh, yes, I did that. So, um, and they said, oh, well, you know, we're, not going to, we're, not, we're, we're not going to do anything about it because there's no witnesses. Even though I made them aware of the fact that I had scars and, and whatever, and, and, and also the, uh, I'd shown them the, the photographs of the assault, at no point did they ask to do a physical examination and look at the scars or anything else. At no point did they ask about my mental health and, and so on. So nothing got done and all that happened was it made my ex even worse because you know she'd, she'd obviously had an had a visit and, and that that fired her flames again i got more abuse from afar for a while after that how is your life now oh it took me a good four years to have any sort of existence at all really where i wasn't either completely anxious the whole time and having it in my head the whole time uh having to deal with stuff the whole time whether it was you know one of her bloody allegations or a court hearing or whatever the whole time and i think getting a bit of control over the flashbacks was probably a first step the thing that's got me sort of back to normality is i mean i'm, I'm a musician i've always been a musician i've worked in music sort of for most of my life one way or another and i couldn't play for the first however long i just couldn't i couldn't pick up a guitar i couldn't do anything because it just made me too emotional my, I started playing again, not because I'd sort of thought about it, just because basically a song wrote itself in my head and I knew I had to sort of get it recorded and stuff. And that that's helped 
I'm now back playing again properly, or I was until <laughs> I was until we had the, the lockdown, and I don't know if it's ever going to happen again now, because, hey, will we still have any venues when all this is over? So that's a bit of an issue at the moment, because that was my main strategy for coping, was being able to go out and play again, and I can't now. But yeah. I did a questionnaire for... Um, there's, there's quite a big study going on at the moment, the University of Cumbria, you might have seen it online, um, yeah. the, the, the Firebird site she's called on Twitter, I'd, I, I'd, I sort of did the pilot one with her, amongst other, you know, there are other people as well that she was piloting it with, and what, what, one of the questions was, you know, what, what do you think, what, what effect has the abuse had on you, and I've never really thought about it before until it diminished me, I wasn't me, it just took me away i'd sort of re retreated within myself completely just basically trying to survive each day one at a time i've sort of come out of that more now and i found other things to do which help um i've been speaking to students and so on um i've been asked to do that um, by a service user and care organization that i got pointed towards but at the end, I'm still involved in legal proceedings, um, still, after all this time, um, because she stopped me seeing my daughter, who's now 10. She stopped me seeing her in breach of a court order just, it's over 18 months ago now, and I've been trying to get it sorted. It's still all going on. She tried to have the house sold from under me, me as well because, you know, we were married. She had a right to whatever, whatever. And I managed to get that headed off. She she won the first round and then I won, won an appeal. So all that time I was imagining that I was going to be homeless. Wouldn't have had anywhere to go because the other thing that she managed to do was she managed to leave me with £53,000 worth of debt. Um, more than half of which was just hers, and she'd, she'd o over time, she'd managed to basically transfer that amount of money from her credit cards to my credit cards. Oh, because you know mine had a better rate of interest, and oh, I'll I'll pay the minimum repayments. Don't worry about it; everything's going to be fine. Uh, and when we separated, we had that in writing as well that she was responsible for these ones, and I was responsible for whatever. And and after the assault and the arrests and everything, she just yeah obviously stopped. So I was left with these massive debts for which I, I had to go through an IVA. So I, you know, I couldn't borrow any money. I couldn't do anything for, for six years and a day. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I was basically looking at being homeless with nowhere to go. I talked to shelter and they said, oh, you'll get a hostel. <laughs> yeah, that'd mm. be great. When I put the best part of £100,000 into this house. But like I said, I've managed to head that off for now. So I'm allowed to be here for now. Although in many ways, it would be very nice not to be here because this house is where it all happened. So uh, I've had to completely reorganise and change everything around so that it's not, you know, well, the only things I haven't done is <laughs> the broken bits and the dodgy doors. Where do you see your life going from now? Do you see it getting better? <sighs> um, well, if, if I wasn't connected to her through our child it would have got better already because mm -hmm. i could just shut her out i'm sure she'd still have tried to carry on abusing me but it wouldn't have mattered so much you know just because there's a yeah. child involved who i love and worry about 
So I can't really see anything getting better until she gets to the age of 16 and she's allowed to do what she wants. Because at some point she will rebel against her mother. Her mother's a total control freak. And at some point she will rebel against that. I know she will and maybe begin to see her mum for, well, for what she is, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've been warning people about this throughout, you know, why make this poor child go through this when actually you can sort it out? But because the whole system is so hugely biased towards the mother, even despite all this history, you know, they're being sacked for work for accessing born. I've, I've had lawyers say, if that had happened to you, you wouldn't see your child ever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've also had lawyers say to me that they've had people who've done quite long stretches for GBH who see their children more than I do. <laughs> the, the system is broken, and I've had social workers, CAF gas officers, covering their ears when I try and tell them about some of the things that went on, and they just don't want to know. They're not interested, and they don't believe it. The Kafkas officer before last insisted I had a psychological assessment because they didn't believe I had PTSD. They thought I was making that up too. Then they were very unhappy, of course, when the psychologist said, yes, he does. Well, that is horrific what you've had to go through. And I'm very sorry that you've had to go through. But I really appreciate you being brave enough to, to give me your story. If it helps anybody else, I mean, the reason I go and do talks to students is you know my motivation for that was if i can help one social worker of the future realize that this is what does go on then that will be worth it you know it's all about just raising awareness and i think there's a little bit more awareness than there used to be but i don't think that's translated into men being treated any more fairly and i really don't think that's the case but it still seems to be that if you're the man then you're obviously the one who's in the wrong well, hopefully that's what, that's what this show can do, that men are coming forward and giving their stories like yourself, then it will, you know, it will get out there and, and more men will be helped. I really hope so, because it, it's not just for, for society in general, it, it's for men who are in these situations and maybe like me just didn't see it as what, what it is, you know? Yeah. And, and there is help now. Um, I mean... Um, before I got some proper counselling, I, I had some telephone stuff through Mankind. Mankind were great. Mankind were brilliant at signposting me to resources and also making me realise that I felt terribly alone at the beginning of the... After, after she'd been arrested and I was going through all the false allegations, I, I just felt incredibly alone and isolated. And they helped me to realise that actually, no, you know, it's happening to loads of men. And I, I went to a couple of groups where basically... All these people from all different walks of life, but my God, their stories were so similar. Yeah, the guy yeah. who ran, the guy who ran the group, made, used to make this little joke about how, but all our exes had all been brought up on the same very small island and then dispersed into the community because <laughs> their tactics were so incredibly similar. You know, the false allegation that, that everybody that I met yeah. there had been accused of doing things. So there was one guy who um, his ex had actually been getting help she was an alcoholic and had been in and out of rehab and he had the kids 
then when she was out of rehab, she'd make some allegation. The kids would be removed. They'd investigate the allegation. The allegation would come back as not true. And the kids would be returned. Right. And in four years, he'd had 11 different social workers. Yeah. And none of them seemed to understand what was going on. None of them put two and two together and said, oh, I can see this has happened a few times before. Maybe we'll treat it with a pinch of salt this time. No, 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 none of that. You know, and that's that's what's happened to me. And I do understand that, you know, if somebody makes a serious allegation, it has to be looked at. Then you need to look at the history as well. It's been happening to me now for the best part of 10 years. You'd really yeah. think that they'd just stop listening after a while, you know. But no. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me today. Well, I appreciate and, uh, I appreciate you asking, and I appreciate that um, I appreciate what you're trying to do, and I really hope that even if one bloke listens to this and uh, realizes what's happening and, and gets some help and, and and escapes before it's too late, then yeah, yeah it's all worth it, isn't it. Awesome. Thanks very much, Sam, and I wish you all the best for the future. Cheers, John. Thanks a lot. I'm saying to you. Cheers now. Take care. Bye-bye. Hello and thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Sam and indeed all of my guests for their bravery. To come out and say what they're saying takes enormous courage and I hope all the listeners appreciate that. I hope many more men come on the show and tell their story. It needs to be said. An FTD talk is a safe and non-judgmental environment for them to do that. I thank everybody for their contribution and for their support. Take care. Peace. Get
How's that rascal of a brother of yours? Super. And your sister, how's she? Oh, lovely as ever. And how's your Labrador? Mm, absolutely delicious. Yes, it is rather tasty, isn't it? More wine. If radio can make two fleas sound charming, imagine what advertising on it could do for your business. Contact Drystone Radio now. Life isn't always easy at the moment. We can feel frustrated, miss loved ones or get anxious. But there are simple things we can all do to look after our mental well-being at this time. Every Mind Matters will get you started with personalised tips and advice from the NHS. Whether it's dealing with stress, techniques to help you relax or simple tips for better sleep. We'll help you find what's right for you. Search Every Mind Matters today. On your smart speaker. On your radio. And on your phone. Across Craven and Wharfdale, this is Drystone Radio. 